3: Good
0: morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio as the crowds gather at Kabul Airport in ever-increasing frustration and numbers and desperation in an ever bigger crowds. It seems that the powers that be in the UK have now accepted that not everyone is going to get out. Let's just listen to those words again. These are words from government spokespeople. Not everyone is going to get out. Now what does that actually mean? Does that mean that not everyone is going to get out alive? Does that mean that quite a lot of people are going to be killed? Does that mean the government has accepted that there are people who fought uh, with us in that region very loyally, with great pride, we're just going to leave them to be butchered by the Taliban? Really? In what can only be described as the biggest military blunder in a decade, the fallout from the US decision to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan continues to terrify and abandon those very people that helped us keep the peace for so long. It now turns out that the heads of the government departments most involved in sorting out the current international emergency here in the UK, that's the permanent secretaries at the Home Office, the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence, are all on holiday. That, in addition to the revelation that Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab couldn't be bothered making a phone call because he was on holiday in Crete, surely illustrates the problem at the heart of the Boris Johnson administration. They simply don't think anything is as important as their own holidays. Please don't tell me that that is a big deal. Please don't tell me uh, that it doesn't matter. Please don't tell me that people are entitled to take their holidays. This is an international emergency. They should not be on them. It's as simple as that. We'll be checking in with former UK chairman Richard Tice this morning to get his take on the extraordinary dereliction of duty currently on display and whether Dominic Raab actually survives. I'm not sure that he will. SDP leader William Cluston is here as well with some advice for the Americans and the rest of the world in dealing with Afghanistan post the latest Taliban takeover. And coming up, we'll be revealing how the woke world has now hit Shakespeare. Commentator Ember Webb will be telling us why the Globe Theatre in London has seen fit to post a number for the Samaritans during the performance of Romeo and Juliet, just in case the <coughs> upsetting themes might trigger them. What you mean, like love, betrayal, suicide, that kind of thing? Get the Samaritans! I can't stand it! You don't have to go and watch Romeo and Juliet, you complete collection of numpties, for heaven's sake! Also, why have they changed the lyrics to its reigning men? Apparently, that's upset a few people as well. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable, isn't it? 0344 We'll be continuing our crusade to reopen GP surgeries as well after the news today that the average salary for family doctors has topped £100,000 for the first time. As ever, we need to hear your stories of NHS failing you and your family. We have got to fix this problem. Finally, Scotland's top nightclub owner, Donald McLeod, is here with the latest from north of the border. And Talk Radio's very own weekend presenter, uh, Claudia Liza, joins us. She's going to be telling us why some celebrities aren't washing themselves anymore. 0344 You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On talk radio, and I'm delighted to say. Time to say a very good one to Mr. Richard Tice. Welcome back, Richard. Uh Good morning, thank you. Great to be
2: here. Yeah, yet nice again. Well. I mean,
0: it's still overcast. What's going on in this English summer? Well, I mean, August has been an absolute washer, hasn't it? But can I just say congratulations on your uh, inaugural show last Sunday? Thank you very much. No, one, I enjoyed it. Yeah, another it one great. coming. Another one coming. Another up this one Sunday. coming this Sunday. So I yeah. must have quite liked it here as well, then. Well, I haven't, been f- back. I haven't been fired yet. <laughs> Listen, it can happen at any time, as I know terribly well. Uh Well, Dominic Rab is, I think, watching over his shoulder at the moment because you, he is looking. A little bit, I would say, on on what they say in Scotland, a sugary peg.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think you've got a a more bearish view than I have on this one, Mike. Uh, Clearly, the first thing is that uh, there are people in the Foreign Office who clearly uh, don't like Mr Raab and have briefed massively against him. But my take on it is the reality is one phone call in the middle of a massive crisis... When you know large numbers of the Afghani government were disappearing mm. out the side door, either with or without well, Ashraf uh, Afghanis ass- jumped to the UAE, yeah. And there's well, sort of suggestions that some of them are taking cash. Look, who, who knows? I mean, but but I just don't think that a, a single phone call would have made any difference. It was obviously utter chaos, yeah, utter panic, and you can understand utter fear, mm. uh, you know, literally sort of pervading through the whole of the Afghan government. And I, I just think that. The reality is, Rob's phone call, if it had been made, I don't think it would have made any difference. And
0: let's remember, this Prime Minister... Does not fire people. No, that, that's the bottom. Well, that's line. that's what's interesting to me because, as you say, there's clearly they're clearly out to get Dominic Raab, and I don't I see why they shouldn't be out to get him because he hasn't been a brilliant foreign secretary. I mean, he's made blunder after blunder. He's he's misnamed um, that that island. I think it was Reunion Island. In, yeah, yeah, France I, I, I think it was somehow connected to the mainland. It sounds of a bit familiar to the previous foreign secretary, who was uh, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. That's right. And the I think the problem for for all of this is you're absolutely right. It's not about a phone call because, as I said to Julie, for all we know. The Foreign Secretary of Afghanistan might have been asking Dominic, you know, where he should buy his next house in in Mayfair. You know, do you think I should go close to Park Lane or is it just a bit, you know, a bit dredgy now? But the point is that it's the the overall um, problem. And it looks to me as though there's a great deal of complacency, a great deal of just very casual attitudes to something which is a massive problem.
2: But this has been going on for years, Mm. this complacency, because I was checking back, you know, this this issue of uh, relocating. You know, Afghanis who've worked with and helped in, in times of great danger, whether it's interpreters, teachers, other assistants, Afghanistan. I mean, back in 2018, MPs like Johnny Mercer, you know, were urging the government to accelerate the relocation programme. There was a heavily critical report in September 18 by one of the House of Commons select committees uh, against, the, uh, against the government, Not relocating, so this has been going on and on, literally year in, year Mm. out. Newspapers have been running campaigns. This complacency, this this slow, lumbering bureaucracy that we have in our government, um, has I think you know led to this crisis. The fact that you know suddenly everyone gets very surprised, and we've still got hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Uh, desperately, in pure panic mm. and fear, trying to get to Carmel and literally Airport. in
0: fear for their lives. I mean, fear this for is not lives. this is not some kind of random, you know, blockade by French fishermen or, 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 you know, some kind of, you know, difficulty with getting HGV drivers to work. This is about life and death. It is and absolutely these are people that we owe, and we're already seeing the government accepting almost. Well, some people might not make it. And and you know,
2: you contrast this with the statements from not only our prime minister but from the U.S. president in early July you know when they were saying that uh, the afghan government was well placed and they were you know that, that essentially it was the right time uh, to leave yeah. I, I just think there's there's just a long standing uh, history of complacency and this whole thing was so avoidable and yet the crisis was actually so predictable, given the original decision by President Trump, which Biden could easily have overturned. Of course he could. Let's remember. He overt- he's overturned lots of other decisions yeah. by President Trump. Um, I, I, I think when you look back at Biden's foreign policy record, it's utterly woeful. It he's is. clearly a complete isolationist. And, you know, I think it does lead to major, major strategic yeah. questions about uh, the, the trust that anybody NATO allies, and frankly, anybody else can have in the US's well, role as the, the global
0: police. I mean, knowing what what we know now, which presumably all governments knew then, i.e. Biden's government knew it, and our government knew it, it turns out that Afghanistan is very, very uh, rich in, in minerals. It's yes. very rich, particularly uh, in lithium. That's right. The kind of minerals that are used for, you know, the electric um, car electric batteries. Cars. Yes, yeah. Which, which... And we've basically handed the Taliban... Billions and billions of pounds of revenue. I mean, look, that, that, obviously, well, that,
2: that belongs to Afghanistan, of course, but Mm. you know, who's going to be in there, Uh, sure, as night follows day, you know, they're already establishing uh, relations with the regime, and it's China, because China is, is pursuing a massive global grab, footprint, grab, of wherever it can see any form of useful um, minerals, Earth metals right. uh, all over the world Whether it's Africa they'll be there in mm. Afghanistan, uh, and I think it's strategically I think it's really really well it, serious what it does as well is on.
0: it puts China basically on the property which in that, which, which um, annexes um, Iran, yep. annexes Pakistan and um, part of the north, north of India and so basically you've got China just actually geographically spreading, not just militarily and not just um, the, in terms of commerce.
2: And the geopolitical implications of this, you know, m- many people just sort of automatically assume, well, Afghanistan, it's its not that significant. But actually, strategically, mm. it really is. You've just mentioned lithium. You've yeah. mentioned the proximity to China, to yeah. Pakistan, to Iran, to Russia. I mean, these are all, uh, you know, they've mm. all got massive challenges. And th- some of them are essentially uh, rogue states that yeah. cannot be trusted by the West. Right. And, you know, we had a position there. And let's just remember... You know, NATO had less than 10,000 troops maintaining the status quo. No one's claiming it was a perfect peace. But, you know, the Taliban were the enemy. But it was better than this. But it's a huge amount better than this. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget, the Taliban, only February in this year, I think it was February, they assassinated two Supreme Court female judges yeah. in Afghanistan. Don't tell me, like uh, the CDS Nick Carter said uh, a couple of days ago, don't tell me that these people are not the enemy. No, uh, you know they—they they, they, we've been—they've been the enemy for the last twenty years. Absolutely. And I find it extraordinary uh, that people are now sort of saying, "Well, we can we can trust and work with these people." We're going to have to talk to them, yeah,
0: uh, for sure. Uh, but don't anybody suggest that you should trust them. Absolutely. And as we've seen already, China is already now making noises to Taiwan to say, "By the way, guys, uh, if you think when we come looking for you that the Americans are yep. going to help you." Check out Kabul and see what happened there. Well,
2: well, this is this is the next big issue, and I'm going to be going into it in some detail uh, on my show on Sunday because mm. I think uh, strategically, you know, the weakness that Biden has shown and his utter sense of doddery, forgetful denial, mm. uh, I think and he's is quite really, angry, as really well, damaging. He's being,
0: being criticized, he it's can't interesting seem isn't it? to handle it.
2: Well, he, he he doesn't do many press interviews anyway, mm. and when he does do them, like he did that one with. Uh, a US news news channel with um uh, ABC, George uh, ABC yeah. and I mean he 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 essentially lost it he couldn't yeah. remember the number of days since right. uh, you know tragically a number of people were and killed and apparently
0: people falling off planes is fine and, and, and as long as it's he, 5 days ago yeah he, he, he so right he's then. just
2: you know no empathy right. no concern um, a complete denial of what he said just a matter of sort of six or seven weeks ago. Yeah. He, he now says, well, it was always going to be chaos. That's not what he said in early July no. when he said the Afghan army was the, one of the best equipped right. in the world with 300,000 troops. And of course, it was very, very unlikely that the Taliban mm. would take over. I mean, yeah. <laughs> has Tugendhat he just Tugendhat forgotten?
0: Point, and as Tom Tuganat pointed out, how absolutely disgraceful for Biden, who, who, who avoided going to Vietnam and got himself an exemption uh, on the grounds that his family could get him off it. Um, having a go at af- Afghan military personnel because they were running away. Well, no, actually, this was after you completely abandoned them, uh, left them without any money because you allowed prime prime uh, sort of ridiculous corruption to go on yep. within the very top level of the military. You know, absolutely ridiculous. But, I mean, all of this is feeding in, I think, Richard, to my point, which is, at this time, Sir Philip Barton, Matthew Rycroft, David Williams, Permanent secretaries of the Foreign Office, the Home Office of the Ministry of Defence, are all on leave. Now, you might say, well, they deserve a holiday. Well, not in the middle of a bleeding crisis they don't I mean what are they thinking you would have thought
2: there would be some strategic thinking to say actually folks let's which is this what would happen in a business if you've got a business with three big divisions yeah you're not going to let the head of each division go on holiday at the same time you plan it you organize it they
0: all all gone off together are they all in some uh, villa in Tuscany
2: but it's interesting isn't it the Labour Party seemed to think that uh the uh the foreign secretary should resign because he was on holiday yeah uh, but that there should be no accountability from the permanent sex shows mm. uh, who actually essentially uh, are responsible. Mm for those for their departments for all the information yes. coming through and the advice given to
0: those who would um, sort of forgive them for doing this who say well you know the thing is that you know these departments are very robust you know there's all manner of people that can do the job no matter who's well why are we employing them for 175 <laughs> grand a year then we'd get rid of them if we don't need them thanks very much cheerio you can just stay on your tuscan holiday I mean there is a certain irony isn't it that uh, on the one hand
2: uh, Labour and the unions are saying, "Oh, people can work from home forever. Yeah. It's no problem at all. They're incredibly yeah. productive." Um, but then, but then the moment. Uh, actually uh, someone is away from home uh, sorry away from the office mm. uh, you know they're sort of saying yeah. well he, he or she should resign but I think, it's, I, think, it's I, think I
0: think there's an absolute connection to this because you and I've been talking for for a long time about why people need to be back working in offices because it is better and I wouldn't be at all surprised if these three characters haven't been in the office for months they're probably working from home already
2: uh, that that's what I've heard I've heard some government departments literally there's hardly been anybody like mm. five or ten percent Back in the office, yeah. as you say, for many months, and I just think there is a real productivity about that, mm. um, particularly at a time of crisis, which which was predictable. Yes. You know, MPs who understood Afghanistan, uh, you know, the military vets, the Tugan Hearts, the Tabas Elwoods, the Johnny Mercers of this world, mm-hmm. you know, they've been saying for weeks. You know, that the, the, this was a looming yeah. crisis.
0: And there's plenty of them. There's plenty of expertise in Absolutely. the House of Commons on this. And they made great speeches, all of them on Wednesday. And, and, and you know, it makes you feel proud to, and, to and even, have that as part of even, the democracy. Even
2: Theresa May, who's clearly a far better former Prime Minister than she was Prime Minister. Yes. Well, uh, as is uh, she Duncan actually, Smith. Uh, indeed. Um, Just imagine where we'd be if he was back leader of the Tory party. Mm. Uh, I think that uh, her speech actually was very powerful when she questioned uh, the quality of the intelligence, Mm. the quality of the knowledge, the quality of the understanding of what was really going on on the ground. And I think what she was really saying is it can't have been that bad. Mm. The intelligence that they must have known what was going on. But for whatever reason, there was a complacency in the decision making at the upper echelons yes. of government. And I, I think that's wonder, the reality I mean, of
0: it. you've worked at, at the top of businesses, and uh, as, as have I, um, and, you you, you know, you kind of, you envisage what might happen if you do something, surely. I mean, surely somebody in a meeting, I would say to imagine the meeting you were in where somebody did not ask the question, well, what happens if we get some kind of crisis at Kabul Airport? Because yeah, I mean, people are rushing to get look, out. the
2: reality is, um, if, if you're at the head uh, of a big business or a big organisation, you can smell a crisis when it's coming. Mm. It, it is looming, uh, there's just a, a growing sense of tension, you know, and, and the Foreign Office, they would know, ambassadors all around mm. the region, people would have known, there would have been alarm bells ringing for weeks and weeks. And so something definitely went very badly wrong uh, with that decision making, yeah. with the sense of understanding of what's going on, and also with the contingency planning, because in business, you know, if you, you've got a plan A, but you will always have a plan yeah. C and D. Sure. And you know there should have been. It doesn't seem that there was any real plans B, C, or D mm. uh, in the event that actually well, uh, events spiralled out stop, of control.
0: Stop here for a moment, but the last time I'll, I'll, we'll pick up on it when we come back. But the last time you were here last Friday, we were both saying, "Where's Boris?" Yes, you know, the way, there was no sign of him. He'd been putting out tweets about stuff, but he hadn't actually been making any sort of formal statement. There's been a vacuum at the top, I think, for quite a long time.
2: And and I think you know, that's what leadership is all mm. about. And if the boss isn't on it, and if the boss isn't around, yeah. uh, giving direction, giving a sense of urgency, then that permeates through any organisation. Yeah,
0: uh, it was only a week ago that we were saying, you know, where's Boris Johnson? Why hasn't he spoken up? And I just said to you, it feels like about um, two or three months ago. It's, <laughs> it's unbelievable, I mean, it really. It, news is moving very fast at the moment.
2: It, it is fast and it is scary. And uh, the, the the global implications of what's happening, it's, you know, how just events over the space of a week could have could reverberate around literally for decades to come mm. i think the implications are really really significant and everybody's got to wake up and really understand yeah. uh, just what this could mean what it means for our uh, our defence planning our position in the world our relations with the us as well actually mm. you know coming no, under strain sure. and it, whether you call it a special relationship or a close relationship you know it's got to survive this crisis but there is a crisis mm. at the moment and it's a crisis of well, leadership. It
0: also, it seems as though there's a bit of a world shift going on, doesn't it? It feels as though, you know, power is being sucked away from the West because of the way the West has behaved. And I call that, I suppose, the US and the UK, but also the EU, who are very quiet at the moment. I haven't heard anything from them about Afghanistan, have you? Completely. I mean, you talk about Holland. I mean, they say about three months off. Well,
2: I mean, yeah. And of course, you could argue, I mean, that's, that's the, the Taliban have been arguably very smart in... Uh, you know this huge push just at the time when actually many people in the West are on holiday. Yeah. It's August. Yeah, you know it's not a coincidence. Right. Uh, I suspect, but no, I do think it has really significant uh, consequences. And you know we are going to have to all wake up because uh, you know the world is a much smaller place, mm. and it, you know the uh, the growing uh, strength uh, and domination of China on uh, geopolitical mm. affairs around the world is, I think, something that we've all got to be really, yes. really alive. And to, what's and also interesting,
0: to. and people have mentioned already, is that, you know, uh, the, the Taliban are more than happy to get into bed with the Chinese. However, they don't care uh, that the Ouija Muslims are being killed and, and uh, there's a genocide going on. So you know, don't give me all this nonsense about, you know, the body of Islam holding it all together, because it doesn't.
2: No, I mean, it's just, you know, we, we, we know what they're like, whether it's the, the, the horrors of the genocide, of the Uyghur Muslims, whether it's, it's their uh, essentially sort of devastation and demolition of democracy and freedom of speech mm. and liberty in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, um, the list is absolutely endless of, uh, you know, of what they're doing. Um, you know, they, they basically are looking to infiltrate all over the world, whether mm. it's in Africa with their Belt and Road Initiative, whether it's in the UK mm. with their uh, grants to some of our universities, our research institutes. Uh, you know, it's all about just constantly... Uh, expanding their reach yeah. until they become, you know, essentially, uh, you know, they, they, they become too big. And yeah. they're, they're all of a sudden, they're dominating everything. They're the only everybody, superpower left. And, 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 you know, we've all, we've all grown up mm. in the knowledge and the comfort and the security that the US is by far and away the global superpower. Yeah. And that is changing in front of our eyes. I think it has huge it really consequences
0: is. because also the Chinese own an awful lot of America, own an awful lot of American debt as well. So you know they could pull the plug on that at any time. And isn't it interesting as well that almost all the areas where they're expanding into Africa, Asia, you know, parts of Afghanistan suddenly results in loads of those people coming to live in Britain and coming to live in Europe. You yeah. know, it's almost as if they mean it.
2: Yeah, well, they, if, for them, you know, let's be very clear: uh, there's there's no such thing as a benevolent. Uh, you know um, Chinese communist regime money Mm. Uh, they're doing it for a purpose Mm. they're investing all over with the the world with a very very clear-eyed long-term ambition and we've got to be really alert to it and we've got to respond to it yeah
0: it makes you wonder whether all these wokists who came that uh, wasn't it terrible when we were uh, so imperialist and going out there and, and running the British Empire well I tell you what we were in a lot better shape in those days than we are now well uh, I, mean, waiting I mean for the other shooter drop,
2: but the implications uh, you know, for our children and grandchildren, if we get this wrong over the next few weeks and months,
0: are really really significant absolutely final question for you richard and just in case you didn't hear richard will be back on sunday uh, with an awful lot more on, on this whole chinese situation and and, and the global the global struggles um average wage for family doctors now rises above a hundred thousand a year this still at the time when so many of them are not actually bothering to go to the gp surgery at all it was extraordinary there was two i mean a, a the quantum b the
2: gender Uh, difference between uh, as I read male doctors about 120,000 female GPs just over 80,000 that's pretty extraordinary
0: it
1: is
2: Um, but no I mean you know the 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 anecdotes of people all over the country who continue to be unable uh, to get to actually Mm. see a doctor Uh, you're lucky if you get in many many surgeries uh, and, of course, there are some fantastic GPs who've worked face-to-face throughout. Let's not forget that. But there are many GP surgeries. You can't get even a phone call no. within uh, 7 to 14 days. And and the tragedy of that is that, actually, patients are suffering. They're suffering pain. Uh, you know, they're potentially suffering life being shortened mm. because they're not getting diagnosed, they're not getting scanned, they're not getting issues recognised. And treated. Um, I think, you know, I think this, again, over the next few months, this is going to be a massive, mm. massive issue. You know, if you're ill, you should demand to see your GP. And they should be forced to see you. And they should be forced to yeah. see you. And in France, uh, as I understand, they paid GPs uh, by, um, by actually face to face appointments. Funny right. that, isn't it? Money yeah. talks.
3: Here's a cool fact
0: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. There's a story on the front page of The Sun today, Wokio and Juliet. Now, um, I don't know how well you know Shakespeare. I don't know how well you know the Globe Theatre, but the Globe Theatre in London is a a beautiful place. It's been built on the site of the original Globe Theatre. It's supposed to be a kind of replica of what Shakespeare used to put his performances on inside. But according to uh, the Wokists, it's upsetting. It's very upsetting because there's fake blood. There's tales of love and lust. There's tales of suicide there's drug use. And apparently, in case you need it, you're all given a number when you go in for the Samaritans. I mean, really, this is where we are. You go to a theatre, you get handed a number for the Samaritans. I mean, it's not even the text has changed to massacre, for God's sake. Let's talk to Emma Webb, social commentator, to find out what has gone on here. Emma, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I mean... um. There are many things I suppose you might need to call the Samaritans for, but I can't imagine they'd want you clogging up their uh, switchboard uh, with the with this with the call that says, "Help me! I've just seen Romeo and Juliet."
3: It's incredibly funny. I mean, there have a few people have made some. Uh, important reflections on this christopher biggins the actor uh said that he <laughs> thinks that imagine. this is insulting to the mentality of theater goers and i think the point made actually by Anne widdicombe is exactly uh, on the money because she says that um you know you don't go to watch romeo and juliet if you want a light-hearted night out no and these people seem to have completely forgotten what art is about right because the activists that are you know seem to be rife in the art world um, seem to think that the reason for producing art is almost like a kind of propaganda tool that it's an instrument to try and socially engineer people to agree with them on these uh, faddish topics but art is supposed to move you it's supposed to make you feel it's supposed to make you feel good and bad and that's the whole point in Shakespeare Um, and the 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 um, Globe actually made a statement about the reason why they've done this and and i'm just gonna i'm gonna read you the quote because i i i i think it tells you everything you need to know Uh, so the globe said that uh, the production doesn't shy away from how uh, relevant this story is to our current societal struggles and so they wanted to make the production anti-romantic in order to quote bring the play into today's world well the whole point of shakespeare is that the reason why shakespeare is so popular still today is because Shakespeare works with human universals, things that, you know, chime with everybody, no matter what your culture is, no matter what time that you're in, he doesn't need to be brought into the 21st century. They don't need to try and make him relevant today, to, to today. He is relevant today. His work will always be relevant. Um, and we've seen this for years, um, since the 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 um, di- the woman Emma Rice took over as a creative director at the Globe some years ago. Shakespeare has been repeatedly butchered over and over again, trying to make mm. it relevant in different ways to, t- to today's society. And it's just ruining the experience for people who are going to see it. And I think it will turn people off. I think people will stop going, um, particularly if they feel that they're being Molly yeah. by being handed a Samaritan number because Romeo and Juliet might upset them. Everyone knows the plot of Romeo and Juliet; they know exactly what to expect. They don't need a trigger warning. No,
0: and that's uh, you're absolutely right about the kind of varying different uh, versions of it. Because Baz Luhrmann did one based in Miami, didn't he, where he had sort of, Romeo and Juliet as members of separate sort of uh, gangs somewhere in uh, South Beach, and you just go, you don't need to do that. You know, Shakespeare is perfectly good. Thank you very much indeed. But I find I find it quite delicious in a way, though, that the wokest. <laughs> Have kind of woke themselves uh, into, a, into a frenzy because it's the wokest who have decided to make it relevant to today's society. Um, and now they're getting slammed for it by the other wokest who think it's too bloodthirsty.
3: <laughs> Imagine the hubris of thinking that you can improve Shakespeare know. And, and make it more relevant to the audience, more relevant to today's society. But this is what happens, isn't it? The These things end up as a sort of feeding frenzy that devour themselves because nobody can ever be woke enough. Um, and we saw this only recently with the uh, with the award winning writer, Kate Clanchy, who's now ha- rewriting her own memoir. Yeah, because some uh, people complained that she had used you know particularly offensive tropes or whatever. And that ended up with a feeding frenzy of apologies with Philip Pullman apologising, even the Orwell found Foundation putting out a uh, uh, Completely unself-aware and ironic yeah. uh, statement ab- ab- about this, um, and so you do end up with these situations where even Clanchy's apology isn't enough.
0: No. for some no, people. No, but this is the trouble. I mean, clearly there are so many people now who have nothing really to do. Uh, I blame people working from home. They're sitting there. They're getting so bored uh, with their egg mayonnaise sandwiches and their, you know, um, you know, de-, de declassified and decaffeinated coffee without proper milk in it that they're all kind of coming up with ways to be offended that they never even thought of before.
3: It's wildly indulgent, isn't it? Yeah. And if you think... The, it's the really decadent, over- actually. It is, absolutely. And you look at the news over the last couple of days and the things that are going on in Afghanistan, mm. uh, footage coming out of people being executed, shot in the head in the streets. And these people are sitting in their armchairs, thinking about how they can, you know, m- make people less frightened by Shakespeare it's just mad and it's so oversensitive and you just think that you know how can people who like on a serious level because I do think this is this is actually very funny and in some ways actually sometimes like going to see productions like this or art like this because if you try to imagine that it's satire it's actually quite funny it's Mm. only when you remember that they're doing it seriously that it becomes a bit worrying but if you think that these people are, are really trying to um encourage a society that is so hypersensitive and so lacking in emotional resilience yeah. that you just think what sort of society will we become how can a society survive like this if everybody is so sensitive that even even Shakespeare might emotionally disturb them so much that they need to go and talk to the Samaritans yes it's mad I mean
0: I can't wait really for the um uh, the production at the festival hall uh, of the reenactment of the Taliban taking Kabul uh, through the medium of dance I mean you know why can't we have that <laughs>
3: Well, I can, I'm imagining some kind of production called, like, Queering the Taliban. Yes, something, something like that,
0: you know, which they couldn't actually <laughs> Although, do in Afghanistan that- for fear of being assassinated.
3: And I'm sure it would be it would be cancelled in the end for being offensive mm. and cult- culturally insensitive. Yes, it's funny how um,
0: how Shakespeare's offensive and the Taliban isn't. You know, the feminist movement in, in this country has been woefully quiet uh, on the subjugation of women that is currently going on, not very far away from us.
3: It's very strange that we... You know, have a a whole cabal of people who pick up on these little triggers in in Shakespeare, in Chaucer, in all sorts of literature. We've also seen recently the musical Carousel be having its ending rewritten to uh, remove remove the theme of redemption, essentially, which seems quite appropriate given that um, this is a movement that doesn't people can sin but have original sin but can't be redeemed. Um, and you know, you you think you, all these people are, are sort of picking apart these pieces of literature, pieces of art. But in reality, there are so many aspects of our culture that are gruesome, are awful, including things like the sexualization of children, mm. the the sorts of um, media that people consume is quite awful in many ways. Um, but those aren't the things that are being picked apart. Those aren't the things that people are concerned about. We saw this also with Sherry Blair compa- complaining about not being allowed to, to become a member of the Garrett Club um, whilst... <laughs> seemingly not saying anything about the fate of women in Afghanistan. So Uh, everything seems to be completely warped and topsy-turvy and out of perspective.
0: It really does. And just to to put the icing on the cake for you, Emma, let's talk about the changed words of It's Raining Men. You know, not one of my favourite songs, I have to say. I don't play it an awful lot. Uh, But It's Raining Them, apparently, is what it's now going to be called.
3: This gave me a really good laugh this morning, um, particularly because the the male uh, report of this gave the descriptions of the rest of the lyrics so it's not just it's raining them um they they also they've changed the line tall blonde dark and lean to um cold bold no sorry cool bold strong proud loud here and seen
0: dear me (laughs) why bother i mean what are you bothering for i mean it's
3: just mother mother nature has been um Mother Nature being a single woman has been changed to single person, of course. course. Um, But they haven't changed the
0: word mother, though. Well, oh, perhaps not. But So, I mean, shouldn't you change mother nature to something else nature if you're going to say that she's a single person or they is a single person? I mean, it doesn't even make any English sense, That's a very good
3: point, but we shouldn't expect consistency of people who don't seem to care very much about grammar either um so they th- this this has been done um by a, a trans artist who i have to admit i had never heard of an american trans singer called mila jam okay um with the streaming service deezer something i'd also never heard of clearly i'm quite ignorant about this sort of thing um and it's been done in cahoots with a charity called gendered intelligence which is um a charity that as far as i'm aware is very big in the same way as stonewall is Uh on promoting gender ideology and they said that this is um good they think because it's going to raise awareness about how vital it is to use uh, use people's correct pronouns, yeah. and the male is very kindly. I'd really love to see examples. them going to.
0: I mean, I'm sorry to keep going back to Afghanistan, but I'd love to see them going to do a performance of this in Kandahar. See how it goes.
3: They're not in the real world, mm. um, and I, and if they think that this is going to make people more keen on you, respecting people's pronoun pronouns, firstly, I think that you know people either do or they don't. I don't think that you can really encourage or coax no. people. Into, into using them if they don't want to Also, anywhere. to be honest,
0: I prefer, um, uh, you know, respecting people rather than pronouns.
3: Exactly. I really don't think that this song is going to encourage people to do that i think it's just going to annoy people mm. or give them a good laugh yeah. and make the whole debate seem absolutely unserious well it is
0: and that's um, the trouble and it is laughable and it doesn't give them any credence and it doesn't give them any any way of actually inv- you know investigating for other people who are not knowing about it uh to want to know about it we just don't care
3: yeah it just it seems it just makes it seem sort of glib and faddish. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that of, of the trans people that I know or trans people that I've met, I'm just I'm not entirely sure that this is something that even they would see as being, you know, good for them in any way. It seems to be um, an opportunity, possibly, as we've seen with many other corporates. I wonder in a cynical way whether this is deezer just trying to um jump on the sort of pr bandwagon mm. of doing something that is seen to be um so socially progressive and part of the so- sort of social activist movement yeah. as we've seen with ben and jerry's and other companies as well but the male the male very kindly have given us some examples of some other songs if they were to be woked including woke me up before you go go and "Let It Snowflake. <laughs>
0: I like it. Well, we'll maybe come up with a few more of those before the end of the show. Emma, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to talk now to Dr Tony Hinton, a retired surgeon, about just exactly what has gone wrong um, with GPs and when somebody is going to fix it. Dr Tony,
1: very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much. Um, it's not just general practice, really. There's a large problem with waiting lists in general. There's a million people at the moment waiting on what's called the urgent waiting list. Right. So those are patients waiting for brain surgery, heart surgery. Um, there's the next list, which is what's called the routine surgical waiting list. Well, it may be routine for NHS managers, but none of those things are routine for the patients. They're things like hip replacements, yeah. patients that can't walk because they're in pain. And then there is a further, probably another 4 million patients waiting to see a consultant. And then we finally get to the GP waiting list because trying to get an appointment with a GP face-to-face is very difficult for patients. Probably only half of the patients I see have had a face-to-face consultation with their GP. Yes. The other half just had a phone conversation or a video conversation. Now, Some of that is because of rules and regulations brought in by the government. In my own clinic, for instance, my own surgical clinic, at one point that clinic had 25 spaces in the waiting room. As soon as COVID struck, well, first of all, it was closed for a month, and then there were five seats in the waiting room, with now one allowed in the, the, the hospital with the patient, and GP's surgeries have been exactly the same. There's been a restriction in their their throughput, and it's been very slow to get rid of those regulations. I thought the 19th of July or the 16th of August, all these regulations were sc- supposed to go, but they've still not completely gone in healthcare. My mm. own GP has been seconded to give vaccinations, mm. though of course all the time he's doing vaccinations, he's not available to see patients right and years now there's been a problem with GPs retiring early the nhs is very very bad at retaining their highly paid staff and they need to do better on that there's no point putting more and more people through medical school if you don't keep the staff that you've spent hundreds of thousands of pounds to train.
0: Yes and whenever I talk to people from the BMA and other kind of uh, professional bodies within uh, the NHS they always say well the thing is we've had a problem for a long time with recruitment we've had a problem with a long time for people um, getting stressed out and leaving the profession to which I always say well fine we've all got problems that are ongoing if you're in a business where you need to fix the situation because you can't recruit people then surely you fix whatever that situation is don't you?
1: Yeah, but the NHS don't do that. No. Uh, the, NH- the, the NHS is vastly overmanaged. managed um, Fifteen years ago, GPs pretty much managed their own practices. And most patients, I think, were happy with the service that they got. Mm. A lot of patients had what they called their own family doctor. These days, if you do manage to get an appointment to see a GP face-to-face, it may well be somebody you've never met before yeah. because it might not even be a regular GP at that surgery. It's a locum because they can't get the permanent staff to do the jobs, not particularly because of pay, I would suggest. It's more because of the other issues surrounding the job and interference, top-down interference from NHS mm. management instead yes. of people being allowed to get on with their clinical job, which is what they went into being a doctor to do. Yes, I'm sure that's right, because like many of the
0: businesses that are run in the public sector, they're not run very efficiently. They're run by people who have never actually done the job at the sharp end, and they're just simply administrators. I mean, I've got this from John. I've got so many tweets and things that I'll read out to you over time. John says this, this sign outside of his GP surgery. If you are feeling unwell today, please contact your surgery to cancel your appointment. I mean, sorry. This is a doctor's surgery where people who are unwell are going to get better. And they're being told, if you are unwell, don't
1: come in. No, it, it's completely ridiculous. Even the chief medical officer has said on many occasions, we have to start living with COVID yes. as though it is the flu. But that is not happening. Doctors and medical staff have always been at risk By seeing patients it's part of the job and it's an accepted part of the job when you think the vast majority of gps and nurses in general practice and reception staff will now all be vaccinated and will be as immune as they will ever be if the vaccines work well that's fantastic Mm. and it looks like for death and for serious illness they do But even if they don't, we still have to get on and get back to normal life. Yes. There are more medical conditions than covid right and as far as actual individual doctors are concerned
0: you know yes some people say look i'm quite happy with a, um, a telephone call or i'm quite happy with a video appointment or all of that but you should be able to if you need one or if you feel like you need one uh you should be able to get an appointment to see somebody sooner rather than later here's another one uh here's one for, it's from robert he says hi mike eventually got an e-consult with a doctor he told me what he thought it was looking at photos and said i should get blood tests done i tried for ages to get them through uh, my surgery and they couldn't book me in for
1: another three weeks Yeah, well, no, it's ridiculous. I see all of my patients face to face. Um, There are obviously some patients where they perhaps just want to repeat prescription or they need a letter of some sort from the GP where the patient's quite happy not to see the GP. But I think particularly in general practice, when you're perhaps um, seeing a patient that might have mental health issues it might be someone that's been uh, maybe abused at home. They won't come along with that. They'll come along with maybe tummy ache mm. or headaches. It may be just a casual remark or something that the GP f- picks up in a facial expression yeah. or the way wider breast, and all those things are missed on a phone consultation and even a video consultation. We have to get back to proper consultations. And I think if GPs aren't careful, they're playing into the government's hands because the government will say, look, only half of consultations now are face-to-face. The other half are telephone or video. Mm. We can provide those for patients in a much cheaper fashion by using doctors or nurses, or indeed some sort of computer programs looked at by people in the Far East, the Philippines, that can be done much cheaper and lots of those GPs will lose their jobs. Mm. And then we're all worse off. Well, there
0: certainly an awful lot of people are getting in touch with me to say that they've just lost patients because they can, not because they can afford it, but because they found the money. They're just doing it privately. Because if you go to any GP or any private, any NHS doctor and say, can you do it privately? Uh, they'll bite your arm off.
1: Well, GPs themselves aren't allowed, I think, to see their own patients privately. Uh, Some of them may see private patients, but I think it's not allowed from their own practice to try to stop that sort of, Mm. if you like, conflict of interest that would arise.
0: Well, yes. But I mean, what I'm saying is, is that it's not because they're too busy uh, to see you. It's because they are not in the current climate or in the current situation in which they find themselves uh, working for the NHS able to see you. But they can see other people. So they've also got some time.
1: Yes, but also a lot of it is that lots of these COVID restrictions need to be lifted. Yeah. And the problem is, things like the restrictions of the amount of people that can go through your waiting room are put in place by somebody. Yeah. Then someone has to take the responsibility to say, let's lift those restrictions. And of but course I thought the they were lifted. I
0: mean, they were meant, the social distancing restrictions were lifted.
1: Yeah but lots of these things are still there for healthcare for instance the mask wearing is still there for patients and doctors in healthcare and again there's lots of things that doctors pick up from a patient's facial expression yeah. from their body language so the mask inhibits the consultation between the doctor and the patient yeah. the type of work that I do I'm looking in patients noses and throats all day because I'm an ENT surgeon mm. And I have to take the patient's mask off because I can't do my job. Right. Um, I've not had any problems looking in patients' noses and throats. I don't know if I've ever caught COVID. I'm vaccinated, so I'm as, as immune as I will ever be.
0: But do you mean you, you don't? Don't you have to test yourself about 85 times a week, though?
1: There are tests that uh, you can do, lateral flow tests, but they're pretty unreliable, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and I think, as well, if we're going to get back to normal... We have to stop all this testing of healthy people. Mm. We don't test everybody for flu. We never have. There's a few tests done just for sort of population um, statistics, that's all. Um, But we have to start treating it as a normal endemic coronavirus, which is what it has become. It's never going to go away. Mm. It will hopefully get less and less of a problem because it will get less aggressive but may spread more easily just like the flu, just like the other four coronaviruses that we've lived with for thousands of years.
0: Right, exactly. And so how do we fix this, Dr. Tony? Because clearly there are some surgeries that are working to full capacity and working very well because I get messages about them as well. Um, I'm told there's no there's no overarching body that can instruct all of these doctors to get back to normal. So how do
1: we do it? No, it is, is, I would agree, it's very much a sort of postcode lottery. There are patients that I see that from certain practices, every patient comes along with a referral letter and they've seen their GP in person. Mm. And there are other practices where it's very much phone calls and video calls and trying to get a face-to-face consultation is very difficult. Quite who that decision is down to, I really don't know. Mm. Um, but it needs to be reversed. We need to be back to normal. Yes, absolutely. In, 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 in all aspects of life, not just GPs.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, let's face it. I get, again, calls from people every day, messages from people every day. They've been into a hospital. I mean, A&Es can be quite busy because a lot of people are going there instead of uh, going, going into yeah. a GP surgery because they can't get in and they're getting directed to the A&E. But a lot of people who are going into actual hospitals are saying that they're deserted.
1: There's nobody in them. Well, certainly my advice to a patient that is worried and cannot get to see their GP face-to-face is to go to A&E because you will always get sorted out in A&E and you will de- be directed to the appropriate department and you'll get the appropriate treatment. Now, that isn't really what A&E is there for, but that may be the only choice that some patients have. And they certainly shouldn't sit... Um, on symptoms that could be something serious. Mm. A lot of my colleagues that work with, uh, look after cancer patients are telling me they've seen a real change in the patients that are presenting with cancer. Cancer basically goes from stage one, where probably it's a 90% cure rate, to stage four, which is perhaps a 10% cure rate. Mm. And they're seeing far more patients than they would usually expect as stage four. And these are young people, these are people in their 30s and 40s with young children and teenage children um, that have got to the point where, although they can still be treated and maybe their life prolonged, they can't be cured Hmm. because it's too late for them. And this is to do with the effects of lockdown. We don't see that in Sweden. They haven't got these huge waiting lists because they didn't do the lockdown. We don't see that in Germany. They had the lockdowns, but they have hugely more beds in the hospital Mm. and hugely more doctors and ITU beds in the UK. So they never had to tell people to stay at home. The government here told people to stay at home. And unfortunately, that's exactly what they did. And they just suffered.
0: And that is the tragic reverse uh, kind of um, result of all of this is that some of the people who haven't been seen haven't been seen because they haven't asked to be seen. And that's, that's going to, I mean, there's going to be a huge time bomb there, isn't there?
1: Absolutely. No, there that, that absolutely will be. And, and we're starting to see that now in cancer. We're starting to see that in mental health, in both adults and children. Um, there was a report just the other day saying very, very young children. There's a huge increase in young children that are now short-sighted because they haven't been going out enough. They've been locked away indoors, and that's affected the way their vision has yeah. matured. There are going to be horrendous problems with this. And there's never been any proper um, um, looking into by the government of the harms of lockdown versus any possible benefits. And in my opinion, the harms are going to vastly outnumber the benefits and the deaths from lockdown will, I think, Outweigh the deaths from COVID. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic
0: of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.